so great to reconnect with a with a really uh, uh, an accompanist and also a leader in his own right. He's played with a lot of shaman musicians. John Lee Sanders, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. Man, it's been, been, been a pleasure always. And, and last time, very good, man. Yeah, man, it was great. Now, I, I question, so, I mean, I saw you guys, I think, uh, I saw Uncle Rainbow do a version of uh, Spankalee, the Headhunters tune. Yeah, yeah, from, from Herbie Hancock. Like, when did yeah. you start, I mean, that... I have been living off this live version of that from like '74, but did you see those cats live play that? Yes, I, I did. I think yeah, they came. Uh, I think they came to Denton or Dallas uh, one one year around around the 1973. Yeah, they they did. It was during the Headhunters album. Yeah. What yeah. was that music like to experience it live? Obviously, it like had a huge impact on you guys, but like, how did you, and you were playing, I think, sax on the, on the tune that I, it was a live version of Spankily. I, I was playing live, yeah. There, there's a version of it we did uh, on a reunion. Yes. Back, back in, um, uh, there. Our, our lead singer needed a liver transplant and we had a reunion and I don't think he was supposed to sing but he flew in and and he did it. So uh, yeah, there was um, you can you can find it on YouTube, I believe. No, and, yeah. and like what what was it like to was that music that you sort of just fell into comfortably, sort of where um, it's just one like dro- kind of dropping the bar lines and just the one long groove. Yeah, we we, we just spankled it like. Most of our sets, we, uh, we did so so many different covers. I mean, uh, but yeah, yeah, Spankily was. Uh, I, was it on the Headhunters album? I think I think it was. Yeah. No, it was on. Uh, it was on. Um, there's a live version of it on Flood, um, which was. But but I mean the one the one that I'm looking at from Germany, I mean. They just Mike Clark and Paul Jackson just sort of start this groove, and the rest of the band comes in, and Bill Withers is playing the African whistle, and I mean they were off to the races, you know Benny Malpin just blowing. But, uh, Benny, but, Benny Malpin, yeah, that, that was the side player. Yeah, he was a great player. Did you? Uh, um, can you just talk about your concept of that music? Like for you, was that? Did you? Um, you know, it's not like overly complex by any means, but you do have to let the body dance in order to play that music. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it became more of a jam for, for us. I mean, we 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 just we could stretch out for ten minutes on that that song, and um, that was that was a lot a lot of our set. We we did it on the reunion, and I think uh, yeah, um, uh, gosh. The, the the organ player for, for Tower of Power, he came in. Roger Smith. Roger Smith, yeah. And and, and we did it in Sacramento on, on the live um, DVD. And raised some money for our our singer, who was in, in need of a living. Was, was, Roger, was Roger, Roger was in a band called Blind Melon. Did, did, did you know those cats when you were in Dallas? That, that, was, that was before my time. I, ah. I met Roger after, you know, after the... When Uncle Rainbow was playing uh, around Sacramento, 
Right, uh, right. No, I, then, I love, I just interviewed him. I saw him, met him in person. Uh, I knew him. I met him in person and did an interview with him uh, a couple weeks ago when Tower was um, up in Scottsdale. And then I'm like, wait a minute. John Lee and Roger, they crossed over, man, because I saw that live clip of Spanka Lee, and you guys were burned. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was fun. It was a pretty good uh, recording. And, you know, I, I, was, I was playing saxophone uh, on that, and Brett Bourgeois was playing playing piano. And, and you know, there were two drummers, David Perper and George Lawrence. We, we all came back together for, for the reunion. Perper was in that band. Yes, he was. And, and he replaced um, George Lawrence, who... who I grew up with him in Mississippi, and we went to North Texas together. Wow. George Lawrence. George Lawrence. Was great, well, great Who was this cat, man? George Lawrence, uh, he stayed in the band for about two years. And then uh, he, he started doing sessions in L.A. And was in, in a real in-demand uh, drummer in this time, yeah. And then... Uh, Thinking about he moved back to Nashville now. Now he's in Memphis. But you, I want to talk about the early days of you and Lawrence. Like, what kind of was he like a Max Roach, Elvin kind of cat, or or did he was he a rock like a Zeppelin? I mean, where did he fall in in terms of his style, and how did you guys? What was the first band you guys were in? He was a he was a funk drummer, and I mean he could play everything. He played in, he played in Poco after he uh, huh. went to Nashville. I mean, he played in all kinds of bands, but um, the first time I met George Lawrence, we, we grew up in, in, in Jackson, and then I moved to Monroe, but uh, the first time I met him, uh, we were playing a theater production of Raisin and the Sun in, in, in the pit orchestra, wow. and and that's how I met him. And so we, we hit it off, and then we, we joined Uncle Rainbow together. And, uh, yeah. That early incarnation of uh, Uncle Rainbow, um, would you guys are, but he could play, you know, weather Spain or weather report. He could play fusion music too, even though his nat he had a natural funk pocket. Yeah, yeah, I, I, he played a lot like Jeff Picaro. Yeah, uh, before before he passed away. I, I, in fact, yeah, that was. I don't know if you met Jeff Carl. No, I met it. I, I knew his dad actually, Joe. Joe yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no. I mean, also his name doesn't. I, when did he be, he became a studio cat in L.A. or Nashville? Uh, he came. He became a studio cat in, in L.A. Because I don't yeah. recognize his name along with all the other cats that were doing the session work at that. Maybe I just. Um, I'm, I'm curious about him a lot, but going yeah, back, yeah, yeah, I, I, we, we kind of lost track when, when David Purple joined the band, and I'm not sure all, all of the progression that he did, and then I, I think he moved back back home to you know, to to deal with some things, and then he moved to Nashville, and I think that's how he got the gig with Poco and, I, and a lot of a lot of sessions in Nashville, and now now he's a, he, now he's in Memphis and he teaches. And, uh, Perper's, I love, I love, I love David Perper, man. He played in one of the sickest bands uh, called um, City Section in San Francisco. They were trying to do sort of an offshoot of uh, of what you know um, Toto was doing, kind of being that rhythm section. It was, it was uh, Perper, uh, David Margin on bass, Alex Litcher, right. Alex Litcherwood on vocals, Jerry Cortez on guitar. 
and Nate Nate Ginsburg on keyboards, Perper on drums, and they oh, okay. they were smoking yeah. band. So I, I mean, I, I, I yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I played in a band in a band about a year that when Uncle Rainbow broke up, and uh, and David Perper was the drummer, and Nate Ginsburg was a keyboard player. We had two keyboard players huh. uh, along with me, and um, yeah, yeah, Nate was a great, great, great player. Well, yeah, no. Talk about talk about because um, you would you would either go off and play sax or something like that, or or like if he was playing keys, or would he do synthesizers and you would do piano? Yeah, I, I, we yeah, we had two keyboards and uh, I, I would trade off on on sax, and, and it was yeah, it was great, great. But having having two keyboards was was great. It was, it was a great idea. You know, just to, to, to fill the section out and everything. Absolutely. And um, Nate was a much better keyboard player than I was at, at the time. But I, I had progressed, you know, over the years and uh, could play a lot of different things now. But, you know, back back then, I, I, was, I, I was a good piano player, yeah. Um, were you, were, were you yeah. kind of like, do you feel like, how have you grown over time? as a musician, not that you were faking it before, but you just think that, have, did you start to play in different settings? Uh, you know, did you feel like, uh, like you were faking it till you make it kind of thing? No, I, I, I was covering all the parts, but, you know, I, I, I progressed uh, vocally. Um, hmm. My lead singer was a guy named Richard Ose. And he could just belt, belt it out. He, was, he had a great range and everything. But I, I started doing every every recording session I could get my hands on and, and doing demos and all that. And I, I think it changed, um, I mean, vocally. I, I, I became a, a much better singer hmm. and, and got, got the range. I started studying with a woman named Carrie Sheldon, who was studied from Seth Riggs, the, the, the voice teacher in L.A., yeah, they taught Michael Jackson and all, uh, Stephen Wonder and all these people. But she was a student of him, and she she taught this. It's called speech level singing, and, um, and I got I got to be got a got a big range and all that, and got a recording set up so so I could record any, any time of day or night. So and I was just you know. It, it, Increased my vocal range and just the whole tonal quality of everything. So, but by the voc with the vocal range increasing, by by nature, then your ears get bigger, right? Mm, I always had a very good ear, but yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think it's. Just I guess you can hear good. you can hear deeper into the music. You know, you can just because of the uh, of the newfound range, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, the newfound range, and also. I mean, to be able to have a recording set up, you know, with a great microphone and all that, I mean, and I, I had unlimited studio time. Right. So, you know, I, I could I, I could just, uh, I could go back and back and back and, and finally, you know, get, get to where I wanted to sound. And um, I have yeah. to ask you this, though. This is really, I want you to, to, to take me through this, this interesting period. Uh, I never went to this bar. But I'm fascinated with it. Um, uh, you know, it brought in all kinds of different music. But you were the house band at the at the Saddle Rack in San Jose, and I I want you to tell. I mean, because 
That to me, I mean, the fact that you were in San Jose uh, is so badass. And I, I, how did you get there? And uh, tell me about the Saddle Rack. I think Garcia Band played there in like eight. Jerry Garcia played there in like eighty three. Uh, oh, really? He did. He. I mean, that's that's what was on this. And you know, just making that trip down from. But yeah, you had Oakland and Bay. You had San Francisco, Santa Cruz, San Jose. So floor is yours. Yeah, I think I joined. It was called the Saddle Rack Riders, and I was on piano. And uh, digital pianos hadn't progressed that well, and. Uh, there, there, was, there was a Yamaha CP70. I didn't have one, but I, thro- I bought one of the first digital pianos. It was it was very expensive. And, wow! Uh, and uh, so we, and we had a we had a pedal steel guitar player named Bruce Kaplan, which who I still work with. Great, great producer. And, uh, one of the best pedal steel players in, in, in the country. Wow, man! I got to talk yeah. to that cat, man. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. You got wait, hold on. You had one of the <clears throat> because those was like eighty. 81 was like the first synthetic pianos that the, but they they still translated over to like sound a lot like an acoustic well that uh, the first one I think was Kurzweil right you know right and I um, yeah one of the first guys that had it I think was Paul Schaefer he, you know, he could afford one you know, on the late night right uh, but yeah um, but I, I bought a cheaper version of it it was called a 360 system and uh Funny story, we, we were at, uh, playing one of these outdoor barbecues <laughs> at, at Silicon, Silicon Valley. Wow. And it, was, it, it was, you know, we had the, the red checkered tablecloths and the hay bales and all that, you know, the country theme. And, uh, and uh, I, I'm getting sidetracked here, but... No, it's great. Uh, it, it, was, it was called, uh, oh, God, what was the name of the company? Um, I don't know, Apple? <laughs> No, no, I wish. It was called. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, Sorry. but um, it, it was a, it was a huge one, and and they had the contract to to design the chips for the the, the Star Wars program. The, you know, from Reagan. Wow! Oh, wow! With, with, with the Pentagon, I mean, they had a lot of different contracts, but it, it was a military contract, you know, and. Um, <clears throat> And anyway, my my keyboard, my digital keyboard, went out, and it started making sounds like a chainsaw. Like, <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't play the gig; I had to shut it down. And I called tech support, and um, it was from LA. And uh, and I said, "Oh, you got to send this back to to the factory." And I said, "Why? Why?" He said, "Well, we got a bunch of bad chips from." From Silicon, God, now, now I can't remember the name. Um, you know this big, huge company, and uh, what was right now what was the name? Oh, like, like, oh, 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 like Hewlett Packard. Yeah, yeah, they're like one, one of the big ones. Yeah, right? it was one right, of the, right, right. Uh, they, they make computer chips. Anyway, I, I went back on stage, and I told, uh, I, I was pissed off at this time, you know, because I couldn't play the gig. Right, and I, I said. Um, well, the reason I, I can't play this keyboard right now is, is because uh, we're, we're we're playing for the company that designed the keyboard chips, and and, the, and the, we've got some, we got some bad ones. So anyway, that that and that was the company we were playing for. Strange, strangely enough, 
and anyway, uh, well, no, that's the fascinating part is that during the early '80s, early Reagan, there was the, the beginning tech boom in that area. That's when yeah, all yeah, the yeah. that's when the, and it just it, it dawned on me like here you have like Star Wars military industrial complex early '80s still psychedelicized you know peninsula and you get that you get like that San Jose I remember my cousin was out working for I think it was Hewlett Packard or one of those companies San Jose yeah yeah I I think it was in Santa Clara but yeah yeah that's but but that just the, the irony of that that situation that oh I can please you know the I mean the hay bales and the tablecloths and the whole you know the beer bash but yeah uh, that band um, who else was in the band uh, let's see there, there was two different there was a couple of different fiddle players there was a guy named Fingers and he would uh, he would play Devil Went Down to Georgia yeah and then he would he would, he would drink a, a, some 151 rum <laughs> and, and shoot fire from his mouth and, <laughs> uh, he, he, he was a great he was a great fiddle player that is and great then, man there was a, there was a drummer named Jim Ed Wade. Uh, let's see who else was in the band. Um, gosh, now uh, a couple of different girl singers. So it was and essentially we country, uh, country western psychedelic kind of music. It, it, it was. I mean, we played we played everything. We played Motown, Stax, uh, uh, wow, line dancing, old fiddle tunes, uh, uh, Leonard Skinner, all, all that kind of stuff. Everything, all of the above. But but it was mainly country, and we, they would uh, come. We would have big name acts come in every once every couple of weeks, and we'd open for them. I mean, it, it was it was packed. I mean, they would draw like two thousand people. There there were two different stages, uh, and one one band would start, and then the, the next hour another band would start on, on different stages. How many floors had, was it? How many what? How many floors? Oh, just one floor. It was just huge, one floor, huge, but a huge space, yeah. Huge, huge stage, and they had a mechanical bowl and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it was like the Urban Cowboy uh, rage at the time. When did you, uh, well, how did you wind up there? You know what, uh, uh, Uncle Rainbow broke up. We had a, um, long story. We, uh, we were being produced by Nard and Michael Walden. Really? Yeah, man, it was great. Uh, before that, we were being produced by Jimmy Horowitz, who uh, who I'll go into later. Yeah. Jimmy Horowitz uh, was the producer of Rod, Rod Stewart and, and Long John Baldry, sure. uh, who I toured with for, for almost 20 years. Um, and, um, yeah, I I didn't have a gig. I was, I was just freelancing around the, around the Bay Area, and... Got, got a call from from the saddle rack, and uh, it, 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 was, it was good money at the time. And, you know, so I, I had work and everything. Well, I got to hear about this. Nard is a dear friend and a big supporter of mine. Like, what? You guys were, but were you, he didn't have Tarpan Studios then, did he? No, he was, uh, he was recording at the Automat. David Rubin, David Rubin. David Rubinson, David, David and, which I didn't know at the time, um, my bass player, Larry Tag, uh, went in to make some dubs uh, of some cassettes to, to send out to record companies and all that. And um, Narda peeked his head in the door and said, oh, who is this band? And he said, um, and, and there was Uncle Rainbow. 
and said, "Oh, I, I, I got, I got to meet you guys." <laughs> he wanted to meet me. I was the main songwriter of the, of the band, and uh, so I ended up going up over, over to his house on Masonic near Golden Gate Park. I think it was. Where was it? It was. Uh, he had a house on Masonic, I believe, near near the Haight Ashbury. Sure. Yeah, and and. Uh, he wanted to get the song ready to produce, and so we, uh, I went to his house about a month, you know, for about maybe even, well, uh, two, two or three times a week. And uh, so, because I, I was the main songwriter, and, and he wanted to get the songs like ready to record, and then, and so yeah, he, I think he was putting out his own money, or David Rubinson was. I can't remember. I, I, I didn't know the, the whole deal, but. Uh, he produced us, and he brought in John Kalogner from uh, Geffen. Wow, uh, I don't know that. That's that's so. Wait, they they saw. I just want to be clear. <coughs> they saw this. <coughs> their vision was that this was going to be some kind of uh, potential crossover hit on album-oriented radio, or they wanted to get a hit out there. Oh, of course they wanted to get a hit, you know, but uh, you know FM radio. But, and this was kind of a strange time. Uh, disco had just hit, and uh, I think I think it was before MTV. Right, right. But you're talking like seventy nine, eighty. Seventy nine, eighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird time, definitely. And that, and, and record companies were laying off a lot of people, and they didn't know what direction they wanted to go. Well, but I mean, Rubinson. I've interviewed him twice. Fred Catero, yeah. uh, Narda. Um, I mean, those guys had a certain aesthetic. What did they see in you guys that uh, prompted them to, to invest this much time? I think I think he wanted a an R and B funk pop band, right? And uh, but his vision, I think, was a little too slick for my taste. Uh, but I, I wanted to get a record deal at all, all costs and. Uh, Narda wanted to play drums on the album, and he wanted to bring in Randy Jackson, which I, I, I was I was on the fence on. What was well, he wanted? I'm sorry. What did what was he? What did he envision Randy's role being? Randy, uh, I mean, uh, Larry Tyke was an amazing play player, and, and but he wanted he wanted Randy Jackson on bass, and he wanted to play he wanted to play drums rather than David Purple and. Um, uh, I hope I'm right on this, but yeah, um, it, it eventually broke the band up. Really, I mean, it, it was really sad. I mean, they were a kick-ass band. I'm, I think. Wow, you know? I, that's fascinating. That, uh, except not surprising that, you know, he, you know, maybe he saw it. <clears throat> you know, it's like have his kid, you know, be the producer, but still wanted to be part of the musical action as well. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, you guys just looked at it collectively, and was there? Where did you come down? You're like, if my boys can't record, I'm not into it. But what you're saying was was there disagreements within the band? I, I think, I think if we would all put our foot down and say, no, no, we, we got we got a sound, we we have this live thing, everything. Um, looking back, I mean, you can't go back, but uh, I, I think if we'd have put our foot down. And, and said, "No, let's go for what was the original sound that we have." You know, but um, uh, we ended up 
performing in another band with Steph Burns, uh, Richard, most of the original lead singer, David Perper, and Nate. Wow. And, um, what was the name of this band? Yeah, it, it was called 360. Well, yeah, yeah, holy cow. And I, I don't think there's any great tapes of it, but, uh, you know, the band lasted about a year, and the lead singer, Richard Oaks, moved back to Dallas. And that's why, that's how I got the gig at the Satellite. Um, you know, I had to work and everything. Right. It, 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 it was a fun band. <clears throat> did you did you have, um, early on at the Saddle Rack, or even uh, <clears throat> at that point, were certain uh, blues or, you know, country acts coming in, looking to pick up rhythm sections, and would you, would you, would you back up certain lead cats as well? No, they were self-contained people all at this time. But I, I, I get a call from Jimmy Horowitz. Uh, Jimmy Horowitz was producer of Dusty Springfield and a lot, lot of great acts in, in England. And he was the head of the record company where Uncle Rainbow signed. We, we, we got an $80,000 budget that got shelved. And uh, long story. Whoa, that. whoa, whoa, what? Yeah. Wait, hold well, on. Was this... this was part of the of the Narda thing that fell apart? No, this was this was around 1978, 79. All right. I get, I get the years a little bit mixed up. But um, we were playing in San Diego at, at a club. I think maybe it was a disco, and, and, and they had live music also. But um, the sound man made a board tape just, just off the mixing board and sent it to a friend of his named Ian Samwell who produced America you know the horse with your name wow and all that yeah and um, and he gave he gave the tape to Jimmy Harwoods who produced Long John Baldry and Elton John and, and he was an English producer Dusty Springfield and uh, he fell in love with the band and we, we, we set up a meeting up in San Jose I think and um Negotiated everything, and, and we cut a bunch of demos, uh, uh, a few more demos in Monterey. Wow! And um, long story short, we, we got an eighty thousand dollar budget. I, I don't know where the money went, but uh, you know, uh, but that's and, and we, we we got a we got a good album. And, uh, wait, wait. I mean, so so in the process of cutting these demos, you guys weren't getting a per diem or a place to stay. Like you never saw that money. No, we no we we. Uh, you didn't yeah, even know you, you yeah. yeah maybe it was just uh, it, it's a long story I mean we, uh, we didn't actually see the money I mean it was you know it was doled out to studios and salaries and all that kind of thing and some of it went missing you know I, I mean I'm sure it was probably accounted for in, in some way but hey um, but we, we we cut this album in about a month maybe six weeks and uh we were, we were also, you know, gigging on the weekends also. But um, anyway, through that that connection from Jimmy Harwood, um, I, I got a call at I think it was nineteen eighty six, uh, and and Jimmy wanted me to come up to Vancouver to record an album by Long John Baldry. You, you know Long John Baldry? Yeah, you know who I interviewed that. Uh that played with him way back when was Brian Auger. 
Oh, Brian, Brian, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yes. Mayor Brian, oh, I'm not, I'm not overly yeah. familiar with all of his records, but, but yeah, I sure do know who he is. Okay. Uh, he was, um, they call him the, the father of the British blues. Wow. And they, yeah. And, and at one time he had Rashuda and his band and, uh, Elf, he discovered Elton John and, a lot, a lot of people. He was very heavy. Like, I mean, obviously a very heavy person. Oh yeah, he was yeah. six foot seven. Wow. And, and I, I, I came up to Vancouver and did all the sax parts. I, I stayed up there for a couple of weeks and uh, recording this album. Great, great, great horn parts, I think. And uh, I'll, I'll send you some. Yeah. Stuff, but um, and then went went back to. Bay Area. Um, he asked me to go on tour with him, so I, I ended up uh, staying with him, probably, uh, I mean, uh, touring with him to, until about night, uh, 2003. Uh, off and on, in Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, everywhere. You, uh, how big a band was that? Uh, but, well, between four piece and, and seven pieces, yeah. The, the biggest tour we had, I think we had two horn players, including me, uh, uh, two or three girl singers. <laughs> uh, there was a uh, woman singer named Kathy McDonald, who was amazing. Kathy, she, Mc, she Kathy was McDowell? Kathy McDonald. You know, know oh, yeah, I've seen her records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, ferocious singer. Yeah, yeah, she was great. I mean, she sang with the Stones and Leanne Russell and, and I can change her and all right. that. She right, was, yeah, 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 yeah. She was a badass. She, she passed away in, in 2000. Right. No, I've seen her. I, she was in the, did you know her before that, the, the John, Long John Baldry? Because she was in the Bay Area. Uh, uh, she was, yeah. She 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 took over for Janis Joplin. Right. And Big Brother and a lot of those uh, no, I met her on a video shoot with Long John Baldry, and she recommended me to a guy named Will Porter, and and I, I got all these oldies gigs out of out of out of Will, Will Porter's band. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff to cover, but yeah, that's you know. But um, was Jimmy Horowitz uh, based in the United States? Uh, Jimmy moved to LA, and uh, and he was president of uh, Reva Records, the label that Uncle Rainbow signed with. How do you and, spell that? How do you spell that company? Uh, it's it's uh, spelled Reva, R I V A. Reva. Reva Records. They they put out a few. Uh, let's see. Um, they signed Uncle Rainbow and John Cougar Mellencamp. Wow. And uh, right around the same time, and uh, they, they they took us to L.A. to you know do a lot of showcases. I think we played the Star Starwood Club, and uh, to showcase all all these you know the, the different record companies and everything. But we had to find him with with Reva. Uh, yeah, he was he was head of the label, and he was also working with Rod Stewart. Uh, he was Rod Stewart's arranger at, at the time. And uh, not now he's in Austin, Texas, right now. Wow. Well, I was gonna say, uh, I was gonna say, like, I, as candidly as you can, because obviously the music, uh, you know, 
comes through you and it's part of who you you are and but stepping back if you were starting out as a young musician to, uh, today would you pursue a career in music oh in, in, in this time period now yeah no uh, I, I, I'm sure I'd probably be doing some of it but not as a career I'd probably be doing something else when yeah. do you, how do you feel about the idea that especially in the states uh, I mean 1984 was the last year a live bandstand musician got a cost of living increase uh, and the significance of music has changed in our culture and I wonder if you agree with that and how it's changed because people don't see it as a full-time profession I, I, I heard somebody say uh, it, it's become the Kardashian uh, phase of, of music uh, Kar- <laughs> Kardashian Kardashian nation of music yeah you know, you know I, I uh, People uh, in, in the old times, I think people just uh, they, they 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 looked at it for what it was or how it sounded. Everything. I mean, they they, they read the album credits. You know, they they they, they followed the musicians. Uh, everything. I mean, now I, I think it's, it's all about celebrities and all that. And uh, it doesn't. Just, there, there's uh, really no. There's no substance there. There's just some sort of brand. It's a brand. It, it's it's yes, a brand. Oh, they say they went to the Elton John concert. It's kind of like they have, you know. Um, yeah, we, we started. I mean, we were playing, and we we go on the weekends and and play till five or six in the morning. I mean, and and the after hours club. Wow. I mean, you know. What were the after hours? Did you was I'm curious because there was an amazing soul jazz club in San Jose. This is a little bit before your time, but there were guys like. Like Mel Brown would drive up from L.A. and John Turk, Clifford Coulter, uh, Ronnie Beck, and and uh, the name of the place was called Popeyes. Was that place was that place still around when you were in San Jose? I don't think so. Pop, Popeyes, I've I've heard of. I believe that maybe it was before I, I was. Yeah, it was before you. And then the, there was a place that uh, Levon Helm played at called uh, in San Jose called Sam Sam's Place. What was called? Sam, like Sam. The name is Sam. S A M. Oh, 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 Sam's. Yeah. Um, did you? I, I can't remember that. That was probably before my time. Yeah. Um, did you play like? Would you take like mini tour? Would like? Would you play the the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach, or would you go? What kind of regional tours did you do with Uncle Rainbow? We were mainly. Uh, we would go from San Luis Obispo, Monterey. Uh, San Jose, of course, uh, San Francisco. We had a huge following in Sacramento. That was one of our, our biggest following. Really? And, and, and when when Uncle Rainbow first moved to California, we, we could do a week at a time, and we, and we could go and, re- and rehearse in the club. So, I mean, we always had new material. You know, in the next week, you know, we'd uh, you know we, we could brush up on on everything, I and mean, we, we could rehearse three or four hours a day. You know, before the gig. What? But now, yeah. uh, club owners started booking uh, one act at a time, you know, one 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 night, and uh, we was just kind of a drag. I mean, we had to we had to drive so much. Oh my gosh! I mean, so yeah. that so did you actually in Uncle Rainbow see like your? Because I mean, bands like yours would ten years earlier would stay for a month in Boston, a month. Play the same club, you know, or two weeks. 
Art Blakey would come in and play two weeks at the, you know, the half note or something, or in uh, San, you know, uh, in San Francisco, or it and and uh, and then it became these one nighter kind of things. I mean, you guys, yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was such a drag. I, I don't know, I don't know where that started, but yeah, we would, uh, yeah. I mean, Yoshi, I think, still does. Right, maybe two know, nights, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah, just you know, travel, travel, travel. I mean, yeah. Did you uh, do? Did you and your friends do a lot of communal <clears throat> communal listening to music? Do you still do that today? That's Music is being listened to in isolation now, as opposed to that sort of ability for people to sit around communally and listen to music. Yeah, I, I think that's lost. You know, um, you know, I had a friend friend came down from Casitas. We, we listen to music uh, communally, but um, I mean, most people listen to on the the earbuds or whatever. I mean, wi- uh, Wi-Fi or sure. Bluetooth and everything. You know. I mean, everybody's got you know, on the bus has got their their Bluetooth, you know, headphones and everything. Yeah, it's uh, pretty much isolated. And this time, <clears throat> but but in your in your uh, where do you see uh, based on your arc of history in, in in the racket and then just your sort of existence, your ability to survive as a chameleon in in the music industry? Do you feel like there'll be a change for the better in the near future? Or do you think this is going to be, because I just feel like, uh, it's never been easy, but it's, they make it almost impossible now. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm 72 now, so I'm, and uh, I'm getting up there, but, uh, you know, I, I, I still love to play, of course. I mean, I mean, I think more of my effort is, is going into songwriting. I, I don't know. The, the you know, the streaming part is just just horrible. I mean, the, the, right? It's I criminal. The business, yeah. the business will eventually eat itself. Hopefully not, but we'll, we'll see. You know, the the beast. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know if, if it can sustain itself. So it may be the only way that it comes back with a little more fairness is if it just completely dissolves, and who knows what the consequences of that are. That yeah, that that and technologies, uh, you know, with AI, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it could be very strange. Uh, what yeah. do you What do you still harken back to? Do you go back to New Orleans, or I mean, can you talk a little bit about your uh, experiences uh, in more recent years, going back to your to your to that region of the world? Yeah, I I I, I went to school in in Rome one summer. Wow. And, uh, it, it was part of the uh, University of Louisiana and, and Ruston, and they leased a campus in Rome, right in the heart of Rome, and, and near the Coliseum. Yeah. So I, I went to school there for eight weeks. I, I learned painting and uh, Western civilization, all that. And uh, I, I took a trip to. Montreux, the Montreux Jazz Festival wow. in July. And what year was this? What year was this? Uh, that was 1973. Holy cow, you were at Montreux. Dude, Montreux 73, there's so much insane music. That was the be- that was the pinnacle of fusion. Yeah, it, it, it was. Well, I, um, I, I wasn't playing. I wish I, wish I was. But um, Who did you see there? 
Well, I, I, I came, it was, um, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, uh, Freddie King was, was the headliner. It was Friday night. That was a Montreux Blues Festival. Well, it, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, there, there was everything. I mean, I, I think it lasted for about a month. Oh, my. I mean, I mean there, there were different acts every night. But but on the weekend, I, I happened to be there. It was it was, it was blues night. Uh, Sonny Terry, Brown McGee, Fred, Freddie King closed the show and Memphis Slam and all that. And then the next night, which blew me away, it was it was uh, the Mears open, and then it was uh, Alan Toussaint, and then uh, uh, um, gosh, uh, it's. Um, uh, Dr. John closed the show. Oh my God! And, and, and then Professor Longhair, yeah, Professor Longhair. I mean, and, uh, that's who you. That's the vibe you give off, man. I, I mean, I never met that cat, but that well, is. You know, I, I was. I I I, I, I love I that music, and I played Dr. John's gumbo. You know, every every day. You know, two or three times a day, and all that. And I I decided then and there what that. I wanted to play more New Orleans piano, right? And uh, so that's that's kind of set me on my path. I mean, I, I was kind of going there anyway. But um, so, like Toussaint would follow, but but the Meters were his backup band, right? Yeah, yeah. They so they were, would just play the whole all the whole show. <laughs> the, the Meters were all the backup band. Right. He had a hit uh, called "Right Place, Wrong Time." I was in the right place. Oh, the, the that was that, that was Doctor John, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Alan Toussaint had written all these hits for, for all these other artists. And, uh, oh, Toussaint! I mean, I I cannot believe that in one night you saw the Meters, Toussaint backed by the Meters, Doctor John backed by the Meters, and Professor Longhair. Did he play solo or did he play with the band? No, he played with the band. Wow! Uh, you know, he, he was backed by the Meters also, and I, I became friends later on. Um, I moved down to Orange Beach, Alabama, and had a house gig in at a, at a place called the Perdido Beach Resort in in in, in 2000, 2015. Right. And um, you know, I, I had a pretty good paying house gig, and, that, and that's before I moved to Spain. But um, we would go to New Orleans you know, every every chance we get, and I, I I got to become friends with his daughter. Uh, Patricia, Patricia, uh, uh, Patricia Bird. Yeah, long, long story there, but yeah. Um, we, we talking about we talking about uh, uh, Patricia's Professor Longhair's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> wow. What are her yeah. memories of her dad? Oh man, he, she, <laughs> she she had. Um, uh, she, oh she oh she oh she loved him, and she was kind of. She kind of has a Professor Longhair museum in her house. Wow! And, wow! And 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 she keeps it memory alive. And um, she uh, oh, oh 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 she you know she loves dad. She took care of him, and you know. When did no you know that was the the when did you get when did you connect with the meters on a and started did you work with them? I worked with them one one time. Uh, uh, in, in Dallas with, with Buster Brown. That's right. And, and then when I moved to California, uh, uh, Zigaboo, the drummer for the Meters, moved to Oakland where, where I, I was living at the time. 
I, I bought a house in 1997, and Ziggy moved there uh, right around the same time. Ziggy was the drummer for the music. Oh, of course, dude. And um, I got to play in this band. No uh, way, dude. Yeah. yeah wait a minute. Wait, wait. So wait, how, you, yeah. wait. So wait, he... He remembered you from back in the in with with uh, Uncle Rainbow, or how did you connect with him? I'm not really sure. I, I I'm, I'm sure I met him, and we would. We, uh, that was after maybe what thirty or forty years. So who was what, what that? What, who was in that band? Gosh, I, I can't remember. <laughs> it, it's, it's, maybe I did four or five gigs with him. That is. Uh, what was that like playing with him, man? That is so well, great. Um, he used to come in uh, one of the clubs we played. I had a band with Garth Weber and, and Peter Boris and uh, wow. I can't remember the bass player. Yeah, you remember Garth? Yeah, we, you, you just. I, I mean, I just interviewed him. I just interviewed yeah, yeah. him. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I think if we would come in and sit in with us, Matt, he was the loudest drummer I ever heard besides uh, the drummer for Sly. Uh, yeah. Gre- Gregorico? Greg Rico, yeah, man. Rico uh, can pound, yeah. So Zig pounded that, that hard, huh? Man, he, he, he was loud, and a small, small club too. <laughs> wow. And, oh, he, he was great, and I, uh, I did a, I did a few sessions with him. And, oh, I did, I did a song. No, I did a whole album with him. It's called "On the Right Track," and um, and Doctor John came in. He was, Dr. John was playing Yoshi's, and um, Dr. John did a guest appearance on Zigaboo's album. Wow. It was called Welcome, Welcome, Welcome to New Orleans. And Dr. John borrowed my piano, and I, I was playing clavinet on the track that he was playing on. So that, that was, that was kind of cool. Oh, that is so cool. Different times. Yeah. Yeah, it just speaks so to. I, I, I've been in the New Orleans thing probably a while. Probably around since I heard the, the Dr. John Gumble album uh, in, in 1973. Yeah, yeah, man, that psychedelic cover. The meters are on that. It's always been that rhythm has always been fascinating to me. Um, tell me a little bit about your uh, where you need to grow the most as a musician or uh, as a person. Well, yeah, I'm getting more into songwriting. I, I always have been. I think some of my early songs were not not up to snuff. I mean, right? I mean, you're grow. How do you feel like you're growing in that sense? Well, well, just um, I think lyrically, I, I had uh, different people write the lyrics for me. Right. Some, some, of, the, some of the better ones. And, yeah, I, I, I was. I mean, I, I hear, I hear melodies and and my dreams and. Uh, you know, I, I can. I'll wake up sometimes and and just just write them down or just. Say, oh, say so you do. So I love that you you'll wake up in the middle of the night and and not to, so you won't so you can remember it. You you write it down right there. I, I do. Oh, I, um, I wrote a song for my wife Maria, and I ran down into my studio. It was like four, five six in the morning, and I was like, it was a, a song going. Da, 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 da. It, was, it was like real. It was like like a movie song. <laughs> And um, I ran, ran down to my studio, and, and, and the computer was already on. So I, I just, you know, 
I, I just played the melody, so I wouldn't forget it. Right, uh, right, right, right. I, I wrote the lyrics later, but yeah, um, I, I think I think my lyrics have, have gotten gotten better. Just you know, uh, 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 much more topical. You know, uh, 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 a bit political sometimes, and just what what what, what kind of uh, issues uh, are you passionate about? Oh, man, you know, climate change. Yeah. Uh, uh, d democracy. Uh, sure. You know, and, and, you know, just, you know, the, the world, world, you know. What's going on in the world? Yeah, I no, I remember, I got to send you my interview with Mac because it, it'll bring a tear to your eye because he was, we had such a great conversation and he opened up by talking about, you know, the damage we're doing to Grandmother Earth. And oh, man, I, I'm... I'm writing one. It's called. Um, uh, what's the? Uh, uh, I'll send you one when it's done. Absolutely yeah. no, and I that I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. That FM broadcast you sent me, dude. I can't wait to listen to that. That radio broadcast. Yeah, yeah, that radio show. Yeah, there, there's some, there's some good tunes on that. Yeah, man. One, like, uh, the one we did, I, I wrote it the night Elvis died, and and Elvis. Uh, I met Elvis when I was. Six years old, no, five years old, I think it was, um, uh, in, in Memphis, and he was living a couple of doors down from my aunt and uncle. Uh, he, he bought his first home when when he, he sold his contract to RCA. Right. And, uh, yeah, anyway, but yeah. Um, well, hold on, hold on. So, because, I mean, I've been lately connected, I've connected with the guy who played bass for him, Later in the seventies, Norbert Putnam, great bass player. Oh, that's where I knew the name from. Yeah, I, I've got to hear all these different. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I mean so much, and uh, and uh, and he did you like did, like Elvis loved to eat. Did you ever have like burgers over hang hang out with him at all? You know what? I I, I mean I, I was only what six years old. Yeah, I know you were a kid. And, yeah. and, and, and my my two brothers, I'm out just you know. He signed some autographs, jump on his Harley, and, and <laughs> but, uh, but I, I had, I, I was, I, I was waiting, like for a couple hours, and, and he, hoping he would come home, you know. And I, I had to pee something fierce, and uh, and so I asked Vernon Presley, his dad, if I, if I could come in and use the bathroom. So, and uh, this was uh, a, a, a funny story. Hold on, you wait. Hold on. What was his dad like, man? His dad. Uh, well, I'm, I didn't know much about yeah, him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I knew about him. Uh, you asked to take a later. piss in his house. Yeah, no, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I, I said, you, "You mind if I I, 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 I could check out Elvis's room?" I mean, and, and it was. Um, I mean, he was living at home. He was living. Uh, oh my god! This is insane. This I mean, this, 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 is, this is before he bought Graceland. Yeah. This is, my, and so he had just done like one or uh, one record, maybe with or two couple records. Uh, he had just signed with RCA, but before that, he was um, he was on a small label called Sun Records. He was on. Uh, he was on that. Sun. He was on Sun. Was that is that true? Yeah, Sun Records. Yeah, Memphis. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was. Oh, God, it's all yeah. That's right. He was on Sun, um, and so, and he was already sort of. Uh, so, you, what was the song? Talk about the song you wrote for him 
the, on the night he passed? Look, uh, I wrote a song called Life is in the Living. You know, life is in the living. Um, um, don't throw your dreams away or whatever. It, it wasn't about Elvis. It was just about, you know, he, he died at age 42. Right. Uh, same, 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 uh, same age as Freddie King. Uh, 42, wow. my God. And, um, you know, it, 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 the song was, it's not your destination, it's your journey down the road. Hmm. Kind of, it's not kind of what the, the story was. Right. And uh, somehow, um, Eddie Kendricks got a hold of it and, and recorded on his one of his albums. Are you? Uh, oh, you just sent me that this morning. That, that, that You sent me that message. Yeah. That is so... Yeah. How... That that to me is legacy, man. Like the idea that some badass like Eddie Kendricks finds a wants to wants to uh, do a cover of of a John Lee Sanders tune. It's just the coolest thing in the world. That that was you know, you know what uh, it was produced by Johnny Sandlin, the guy. Who oh my God, rest in no, man. I, I interviewed yeah. uh, Paul Hornsby from the Almond Joys. You know, going way back. Oh well, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. so he, Sandlin produced. A Kendrick's album. Yeah, and that was one of the cuts that didn't make it to the album. I mean, you know, you could only put uh, maybe seven or eight songs on vinyl. Um, so that that was one of the ones that, that didn't. Make oh, the album so it didn't. Album. It didn't. So it just it, it was stayed on the shelf. Yeah, but um, I mean, he sent me a, a tape. It, it, it was a great recording. Oh my god, you know. Do you I have that? I got to hear that. You have it digitized. I'd love to hear that. You know, it's. Uh, it's, it's on SoundCloud, but I, I'll, I'll send you a, a link to it. Hey, uh, John Lee, I got uh, to go get my kids, so I, we got to wrap up part two. But let's, after the new year, let's do another set. Oh, man, I, I, I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah. Hey, man, it's always good. I really appreciate your vibe, and, uh, and uh, keep it happening, man. I, I, I will. You, you too, man. I'm looking forward to all these different. I'm gonna send yeah. you. I'm gonna send you a bunch that are. It's just crazy. This the the six degrees of separation on this journey. So I know you know all about that. Yeah, that that was. Um, I don't know how that happened. It was just um, just one of the things, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't need to spend too much time thinking about it. Just trying to trying to uh, live life, like you said, like the song for Elvis. Yeah. I, I will. All right, man. Be, we'll be in touch. Right. Yeah. Okay. Be cool. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.